And that kind of gets into energy and metabolism a little bit more. Um, essentially, if you have two systems and you only have the two low-end aerobic systems available, you're you're limiting your substrate ability and your and what I refer to as metabolic adaptability. That triathlon show one hundred ninety. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Shannon Grady. And boy, oh boy, this is one of those episodes that, at least for me personally, goes down the history books of the podcast as one of those that really taught me a lot of things that I did not know before doing the interview. So who is Shannon? Well, she is the founder of Go Athletics and an expert in the application of bioenergetics and lactate dynamics. And she has worked with thousands of athletes uh, from collegiate and uh, high school level all the way up to Olympic level in, I think she said, 25 different sports, if I recall correctly. She's herself a former professional runner, an NCAA All-American runner and a five-time Team USA triathlon member with four top 10 finishes at ITU World Championships. So this is an exciting interview that we have coming up on bioenergetics, lactate dynamics and how they affect human performance. And it's pretty long, so I won't waste your time with an intro. Let's just thank our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration. And by the time of recording this intro, I just interviewed Andy Blow. And that episode is the hydration Q&A I've been talking about it will be out in episode 192 in two weeks' time, so stay tuned for that. Perhaps if you want to warm up for it and refresh your memory on hydration and electrolytes, you can go and have a listen to my first interview with Andy back in episode 49, which is still as relevant today as it was back then, quite a long time ago. So check that out. It's scientifictriathlon.com forward slash TTS49. And if you haven't tried Precision Hydration's products yet, you can get your first box or tube for free with the promo code THATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps, on precisionhydration.com. And thanks to Roka. In last week's episode, 189, which if you haven't already listened to, you should go back and listen to it. One of the things I talked about was how you have to have a purpose for your workout and potentially several purposes. But one of the categories of potential purposes that you can you can have for a workout is the category that is uh, quote-unquote what I call environmental. So are you swimming in a pool or in an open water, in an open water setting, for example? And one of the things that I love about Roka is how they make it as uh, seamless as possible to translate your pool swimming skills into the open water. They do that through like really advanced technology, for example, both their wetsuits and tri-suits are designed with arms-up technology for maximum shoulder mobility. Even their entry-level wetsuits have this, and that's something that no other wetsuit brand has on their entry-level wetsuits. Also, their goggles are designed for maximum sighting efficiency with uh, better angles for the view field of view. So they do a lot of things to help you take your pool swimming skills into the open water and make sure that you leave as little as possible of a gap between those two different settings. So check out all their products and also other categories like uh, you have, for example, their high-performance eyewear on roca.com and you can get 20% off your entire order with the promo code TTS, all caps. 
All right, let's hear the interview with Shannon Grady. So welcome to That Triathlon Show, Shannon. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good as well. And uh, as uh, you talked about uh, just uh, a while ago, we may have a little bit of lawn mowing sounds coming from behind you, but uh, let's uh, hope that that doesn't uh, disrupt this discussion too much. Uh, I'm really excited about this uh, based on some email conversations and Instagram conversations we've had. So uh, let's uh, dive into it as quickly as possible. But uh, just before that, can you introduce yourself a bit to the listeners that may not know about you and your background? Sure, certainly. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, my name's Shannon Grady, and I'm a sports physiologist, and I'm also a um, former professional runner and tri- elite triathlete. And um, my background is in sports performance. And over the last 20 years, I've mainly focused on um, physiological evaluation and training consultation for many um, high-level coaches in the U.S. and around the world primarily started out in track and field. And well, I was originally a physiologist for the USOC, so started out working with many of the national teams, but then I went off um, and started working on my own, doing consulting and testing for uh, primarily college, professional-level athletes. Um, and now I work with athletes and coaches in over 25 different sports. Um, so that's, that's my background in a nutshell, but, you know, I still continue to uh, race and compete, which is always fun as well. And, and right now you're racing triathlons mostly or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's impressive with uh, with the testing and uh, in 25 different sports, I, I imagine that you learn a lot, even though sports might be very, very different the the information that you glean from one sport can potentially be applied in ways that unexpected ways in other sports that uh, that people that are just focusing on one single sport might might not even realize is that the case oh absolutely um you know the biggest thing is is uh you know learning the language of the sports the different sports you know because human metabolism you know and you know how the body works is the same in all in all the athletes but conveying the message is sometimes a challenge. So that, that was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, when I, whenever I kind of move into a new sport, it's, you know, understanding their language, understanding what's important to them and, um, kind of what they're used to. Cause you can definitely offend some people if you kind of say some things that are start, you know, drastically different than what they're, they're used to. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a lot of, uh, understanding, and communication skills are definitely necessary when crossing into different sports. What would be an example in, in endurance sports, in triathlon or running, of uh, so- something that you would potentially be able to offend somebody by saying a certain thing or, or something that uh, that you've noticed with, with just how you speak to endurance athletes? Um, well, I would say that um, take swimming, for example. Let's just take that sport. Um you know, that's a, that's a sport where, you know, obviously we're, we're looking at human physiology, um, and energy, um, optimizing energy for optimal performance. And, you know, one of the, the biggest thing in, in a lot of the swimming models and swimming thought process is that the swimming athletes train for 
sometimes five to seven different events that are very energetically different. And when you try to broach that subject of optimizing performance and maybe focusing on less events, uh, they don't like that. Coaches don't like that very much. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm just trying to explain how energy works and, you know, to really get to the next level, um, you need to really focus your training on uh, maybe maybe fewer events rather than many events. So instead of being mediocre in seven events, maybe you can make the national team in two or three events. Um, you know, so that's, that's one example. Um, and then just the way you, when you're training, when you're advising coaches, um, you know, a lot of them get nervous when they test because they're, they're always nervous that the testing might show that they're doing something wrong And, you know, you have to be very careful. You're not doing something wrong. The testing information is just information. There goes that lawnmower. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, it's just information. And there's no right or wrong training. We're just giving you data to make better decisions. So, you know, I've learned over the years, you know, the way you um, present information is very critical um, to coaches. Because, you know, as as a coach, you know, it's a very personal thing. personal thing, you know, and, and, um, but human, human physiology is pretty objective. So, you know, when you present the data and, you know, you don't want to make a coach feel like they're doing anything wrong when, you know, there's no, like I said, there's no right or wrong answer. So. Yeah. I, I like that. What you said that human physiology is, is very objective and, uh, let's get into that. That's, uh, the main uh, focus on, on, of this episode. And, uh, the way that you do testing is, is based on, on lactate and lactate dynamics. Uh, that's, uh, I guess, so your main area of expertise uh, and yeah. how it relates to training as well. So, so can you give us an overview of, uh, of your work in that realm? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, my, my love affair with lactate, um, began uh, when I started working at the Olympic Training Center back in 1998. And, you know, it was from that point on where I really started focusing on that particular methodology. And um, what I realized pretty quickly is that the information that we were disseminating at the time was, and is still pretty much what everybody, kind of the realm in which most people are working within, uh, in terms of how they test for lactate, the use of lactate um, is still pretty limited in the general uh, sense of the word. Um, and what I found out was that there's so much more than what the general public and even the scientific community and coaching community is aware of at, at this time. And it was really a quest for answers that my journey began Uh, in terms of, you know, we have a group of athletes that are similar in talent, yet some of them respond to the training, some of them don't, some of them stagnate, and some of them get worse. And it was really kind of question, and and that was kind of my own story um, in terms of when I went to college, I was the number one um, recruit in the country in the U.S. for running. And I went to a team with very similarly talented athletes, And, you know, some of us improved, some of us stayed the same, and some of us got worse. And, you know, I was referred to sports psychology, you know, saying you need to, you know, focus and do all these other things. And I'm like, listen, I'm doing everything I'm told to do. 
I want to go out there. I want to do my best, but you know, my body's just not responding. And that was a little bit of kind of why it was such a, a, a personal uh, quest for me and understanding responses to training a little more in depthly instead of just the blanket generalized uh, concept of training and lactate just happened to be one of the things that was one easily measurable. Um, so my work in my early career, I tested athletes in masses. I would go out to the field, um, test groups of 60 to hundred athletes in a day, um, taking samples every every four to six weeks over the course of an entire collegiate career. So over four years. So, you know, the tracking, the, the, the testing frequency was um, pretty high and the numbers were pretty high. And just really the first six to eight years was just a lot of gathering data, understanding data in, in um, athletes, the types of athletes that aren't typically included in academic research. So, You've got a lot of academic research in endurance sports. And, you know, my my athlete samples were mostly middle distance and uh, anaerobic athletes. Um, and just seeing the, you know, the vast, uh, dif- vastly different scenarios that you would come across when measuring lactate data in uh, these groups of athletes. And so the... You know, as far as my approach, um, essentially how I describe lactate um, is essentially that it's a, it's the human unit of energy, and it's a objective and quantifiable, reliable biomarker that has a direct correlation to an athlete's ability to perform in a sport or an event. And when you look at lactate as a unit of energy, and instead of just this um, typically known as a uh, you know nuisance <laughs> most people think of lactate as bad when it's actually a pretty good thing uh, you know and just having a very different perspective on it uh, and a deeper understanding of how important this this molecule actually is to, to performance yeah and, and that's uh, also where the the population that you're testing of course plays a huge role like how how important is the the use of, of lactate as energy uh, for a middle distance runner compared to to an ironman athlete so so it's about knowing the the testing and the process but also knowing the event that the athlete is training for and how the testing relates to to that event of course uh, can, so can you talk about uh, i guess uh, you can dive into some more details about how you are testing and using lactate these days and and using it to uh, to objectify, uh, to to make uh, get an objective view of how training is going and uh, and what an athlete should be doing, perhaps. What what are you doing these days with lactate testing? Absolutely. Um, well, first and foremost, um, the protocol which I develop and use as my standard, most common protocol is what I call the physiological profile protocol. And this test, even though I originally wanted to test athletes to understand just as you mentioned, if the training was going well or not, or if they're responding to training or not, it actually turns out that the test itself is more of a diagnostic. Because when you're observing changes in lactate data, um, it's if you understand the metabolism of lactate, lactate dynamics is really influenced by a variety of factors in addition to training. 
Um, you know, lactate dynamics can also be affected by nutrition, illness, disease, or other metabolic limiters. So that's a huge part of understanding from test to test what it is you're looking at. So you can't really make the assumption that all net, you know, lactate readings are basically due to training response or not. So in my world, since I was a, a, an advisor to coaches, my model and approach really ended up being more of a coaching tool. And, you know, in the real world, you know, there's, you're working with athletes and you, you work with athletes, correct? Yes. And as a coach, you know, the only things that you can control is the training load. Because our athletes are all uncontrolled subjects, right? So if you're trying to get a model out of a controlled setting, an academic research study that's all controlled, it's rarely going to work in the real world. Because as you know, athletes are all uncontrolled subjects, especially college athletes, right? So the diagnostic test, the test in and of itself, is simply a tool for coaches to understand, given this athlete's current uh, bioenergetic status, what is the appropriate training load this athlete can handle at this time? So the model I developed is actually a positive response, um, appropriate load training model. So the, the, the profile data essentially gives us the information based on what type of training load, volume, intensity, and work-to-rest ratio can this athlete handle at this time to create a positive physiological response and in turn a positive performance response. So instead of really setting out your phasing, your can, can you give an example of what that might look like? Like a very simplified example, just absolutely. Yeah. Um, so for example, I'll give you a, a, a great example. Um, a lot of the, the athletes that I test, especially the college athletes, let's take a runner, for example. A runner is going to run year-round in the, in the U.S. collegiate system. They're going to run um, most likely cross-country, uh, indoor and outdoor track. So they're running pretty much year-round. And a, a college athlete, we're going to test four times a year. We're going to test them at the beginning of each season. And um, so we're going to test them in the beginning of cross-country. We're going to test them in the beginning of indoor track. We're going to be test them in the beginning of outdoor track. And then we're going to test them at the beginning of the off-season to set up their summer kind of off-season training. And you've got a group of athletes. When you go to a team, you're going to have 30 to 50 athletes that you're testing. And so say, for example, cross-country season, you got all of your athletes training for the same race. Um And if you test an athlete and, you know, ide ideally the coach is going to give them all the same training because they're going to be running the same events. But when you test an athlete and they've got half of their potential bioenergetic energy available. And at this point, so sorry to interject, but at this point, can you, can you clarify uh, the bioenergetic energy and, uh, and the bioenergetic energy status that you referred to for, uh, Absolutely. for us? Absolutely. So I refer to the, the physiological profile test, which is essentially a, a lactate test that is a, uh, you start out, you know, it can be any protocol, say we're talking running, you start out very easily and we're taking blood lactate samples on a, on a regular basis and the intensity or speed is going to get faster and faster and they're going to go until essentially a max effort. 
Um, so we're looking at their entire lactate uh, spectrum um, and seeing what is their availability of net lactate across the human spectrum. So the potential net lactate you have for a human is 0.7 to 32 millimoles. Okay. So in general, most athletes are operating within the range of anywhere from 0.7 to about 20 millimoles is generally the range you're going to see. Um, so if you test an athlete and they're missing half of the, the range in which they are, uh, half the range in which they should be operating in. So for a college runner, you're going to be looking at a, a, a net lactate range of anywhere from 0.7. Ideally, you want to be upwards about 12 to 14 millimoles. So if that athlete tests and they've got that range of range of lactate available, um, and then you test them, say, three, three months later um, after the cross-country season, and they only have a range of 6 millimoles, then that's half of the bioenergetic availability from when they had 12 millimoles available. Okay, so they're, they're and, and the twelve the twelve millimoles that that in this case you refer to as the the ideal, how has that been determined? Uh, is uh, do, do, is it just based on your testing or or are there any other? Yeah. So over the so what so as I said, um, I break when I test when the physiological profile test, I break the potential energy of system. I, I refer to them as systems into eight eight different systems, which which is dependent on the human range of lactate from 0.7 to 32. So those, those that range of lactate is, is broken down into essentially eight different parts. And what I've why I've broken them up into systems is what I've what I've found with my testing, my research in performance is that performance is dependent on parts of your physiology. Okay, so if there's too many parts missing, too many of those systems missing. So what I, in my in my uh, methodology and approach, I have eight potential systems, and from low anaerobic to max anaerobic, and we have eight potential systems. And no matter what event it is you're training for, you're going to need parts from both sides of that spectrum, right? So if you're training for more of a middle distance, you're going to be skewed more towards the anaerobic side. And if you're training for, say, an Ironman, you're going to be skewed towards the aerobic side. But if you only have two parts available of the potential eight, that's a big problem. Um, can you, so can for, you break down what the ranges are for those eight systems? What are the lactate ranges yeah. that we're talking about? Yeah. So the eight, again, they, they fall from 0.7 to 32. Okay. So the, the ranges of each system is going to be dependent so what you're looking for is going to be dependent on several things. Um, but no matter what, the way I describe it is performance is, is similar to like an assembly line, right? If you're trying to build cars and you have all of these parts going into the assembly line to produce cars, if you have a lot of, say you have um, 400 steering wheels, but you only have 200 car, you, you only have 200 bodies, you know, the, the frame of the cars, your max ability to produ produce cars is going to be limited to 200. Even though you have a bunch of steering wheels, you still can't make more than your, than the parts you have available. Okay. So in performance, it's the same thing. If you're missing parts 
of your metabolism, of your physiology, whether it's slow energy or fast energy, your performance or your output is going to be diminished. So from a conceptual standpoint, it's easy to, with these eight parts that we, we, that I measure and test and quantify. If you're looking at the parts, we want to, for optimal performance, what I found is that six of those parts, whether it's skewed right or skewed left, is ideal for optimal performance in any event. So when you're training and you're missing a part, we can, we can measure, just like you would take your car to a shop to get it checked out to see you know, which parts might be missing or which parts need, need improvement, it's going to increase the performance of that vehicle. Same thing with training. Sometimes, so in, in, for example, I've had athletes going into the NCAAs about to race the 800 meters, which, you know, you want to run pretty fast, right? So I had an athlete, for example, we tested him six weeks before NCAAs. And his, his parts that were missing were the parts that were, were that equated to about a 520 mile pace is where he had to do most of his training. So he's going into the NCAAs, you know, he's a 146, 800 meter runner. And most of his training is super slow. But that was the part that was missing that was going to yield a physiological response, which was holding him back from his overall output. So that's just kind of one example. And it goes across. So what I found in my uh, performance analysis of the data is that every part you're missing under the six parts yields about a 6 to 8% decline in performance output, no matter which part it is you're missing. So the goal of training and using the testing is to, one, first diagnostically see which parts do we have available and at what level are they operating and what type of training do we need to improve the overall performance of that that system. Um, So it's either, you know, you've got to train to create more parts, more energy, more bioenergetic energy to be available, or you have to train to improve the parts that you that you do have, and, um, and I guess to to see whether you have a part or not, that's just whether you can produce a net lactate value of whatever it is that is that that part corresponds to. Is that correct? So if you can't correct. get your lactate to a certain level, then you're missing those high end uh, parts or those high end systems. Exactly, exactly. And and again, you know, you want to, you know, if you're training for a Ironman, we're not too concerned with the you know, two upper end systems very much. So we want to turn those off because you can't have all parts strong at all times. So there's always a give and take and a shifting of energy with training. So you have, as a coach, um, you know, when we do the testing, you look at, okay, where am I now? Which parts do I have available? And where would I like to be? And which parts are optimal or ideal for, for um, energy output for the event in which I'm training? Um, you know, but you don't want to go in, even though low end peak energy for an Ironman per se is very at the lower end of that, of that aerobic spectrum. You don't want to go into the Ironman with just two parts available. You don't want to just go in with only your low end aerobic available because that's going to diminish your overall ability of your aerobic, your low end aerobic system to operate efficiently um, and a higher at a, and at a higher rate of output. So even though that's your main energy you want for peak performance, you still need to have what what I call a physiological range 
in, intuitively that makes all the sense in the world. But uh, from a technical perspective, a theoretical perspective, why is that really? Why, why do we need those high parts that are at a higher intensity than what the race intensity actually is? At least if we're going to just do the Ironman as a pure time trial at a steady pace. Yeah. So, um, and that's going to get into some a little bit of kind of technical science and the kind of the, the theories around um, how this whole process works. And a lot of what I developed in terms of the bioenergetic and the application of this is based on a lot of the theories of thermodynamics, which you as an engineer are probably very interested in. Um, so, you know, in terms of my main theory based on um, – what I call the greedy human efficiency theory um, is based on the fact that human performance has two main uh, rate limiters. Um, and if you're familiar with different laws of thermo thermodynamics, um, this one, this in particular is similar to Carnot's efficiency theorem um, in terms of energy and efficiency and the ratio of output energy and input energy. Um, and essentially, you know, Carnot's theory and my theory of human performance is is in essence the difference between the input and output or the max and the min okay so if your difference is smaller your uh possible efficiency is going to be decreased okay and how well you convert energy is going to be decreased um so essentially when what i've seen across pretty much you know, every single example where the where the uh the physiological range is diminished. The performance output, like I said, drops six to eight percent. Shannon, can you can you, jump, can you jump five seconds back because the the connection broke up just a little bit. So uh, you, yeah. I heard you t until like the the difference between the if the difference is small between the the the, the difference the yeah. difference is small. So every, so I guess I break it up into eight part eight systems. So if the different as the difference decreases the performance efficiency and the output ability is decreased. So every system that, that you lose decreases your ability to output by about six to 8%. All right. So it, it, it so it's, it's a matter of energy and efficiency and the max and the min that, that differential creates um, essentially greater efficiency and overall work output. Um, and that kind of gets into energy and metabolism a little bit more. Um, essentially, if you have two systems and you only have the two low-end aerobic systems available, you're you're limiting your substrate ability and your and what I refer to as metabolic adaptability. And if you're only operating, so just let's make another correlation. I use this one a lot, like an engine. You have an eight-cylinder engine, and you're running off of two cylinders. What's going to happen to that engine? You tell me. It's, I'm not, 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 gonna, not an engine person. <laughs> essentially, you're going to have trouble operating that engine. Okay, um, you know the difference between you know humans and machines. We have a lot of you know abilities to measure efficiency and measure these things in engines and machines, but there's really hasn't been a way to measure all this stuff in humans, and that's kind of essentially what I'm doing. Um, you know, the, the, the algorithms, the performance capabilities, and using lactate along with velocity data and power data, I, I developed these um, um, different metrics that will 
essentially indicate if that person has different performance capabilities. Um, if that energy in which they have available is operating at a level high enough to perform certain tasks. Um, you know, especially, and, and, and remember, I started out in running. You know, running's a great sport where it's a measured variable sport. Everything in the sport is measured. You can measure the velocity, you can measure the distance. So it was a great sport to, to really use to test all of these things and, and uh, do the analysis and come up with, you know, with the different algorithms and because you can, you, everything's measurable in their sport. All their training is measured. Um, as you skew away from, from measured variable sports, you know, the, the beep score, you know, like I said, so f- for example, you need certain scores across each system to run a four minute mile versus a five minute mile. The energy output, um, the velocity at each net lactate needs to be at a certain level across your energy spectrum in order to achieve certain performance results. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. So, so when I go to a coach and I present the results and they wonder why I'm suggesting the athlete does slow training right now, as opposed to fast training right now, I can show them the the data that says, well, see this part of your energy it's 30% lower than where it needs to be to run a four minute mile versus this fast energy right here is, is where it needs to be. So we don't need to worry about that part. We need to worry about this part because that's where our, our uh, ability to create a, um, a performance gain, a physiological gain is, is lacking. And if we target that, our overall output, our speed over the, the one mile our velocity that we need to create, um, we're, we're working on the part that's missing for that. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. And and are you saying yeah? And, and are you saying that, for example, I'm just pulling numbers out of uh, out of a hat now. But if uh, we say that somebody is at eight millimoles for lactate, they have they're running at a speed that is faster than what is required to run. Let's say their goal is a five five minute mile, uh, but at two millimoles of lactate, they're not at the level required. Uh, can you compensate and run that five-minute mile by just running even faster at eight millimoles of lactate by just pushing another system even higher? Or or is there a minimum for each system? Or so you know what I mean? So there's, yeah, so that's a great question. And depending on the event, um, so for the mile, for if you're talking about the mile, um, there's going to be, you have eight potential systems. If you hit the mark in five to six of them, then you're most likely going to do it. Um, but if you're missing in, in one or two, um, so if the person isn't there at two millimoles, which is most often the case in middle distance athletes, um, but they're ha- relying more on the anaerobic system. And it's also going to depend a little bit on the individual physiology of the athlete. So sometimes they're going to skew more aerobically versus anaerobically. Um, but there's go you're going to need to hit the mark in in six of those systems, not all eight. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I guess for, yeah. for athletes that don't have that particular goal, but today, how, how would an athlete that doesn't have a goal, they just want to see what their performance is at the moment and what is the best way for them to train going forward if they come and do this? We're not talking about, yeah, I'm going to run a five-minute well, five mile, but I still want to do this yeah. test and see what the best training for me is. What, what would that process look like for me? Yeah, I mean, so first off, I mean, the process itself is, you know, the test itself, if you're going to do a running test, it's going to be um, uh, generally 
we're going to do 800 meter repeats depending on how fast you are. So if you run um, 10 minute mile pace or faster, then you're going to run 800 meter repeats. If you're running slower than that, you're running 400 meters. Um, so you're running about, um, and you're going to start at a very slow speed. Um, and, and that's, so the start speeds is varies based on the current athletes, um, fitness level. So it starts at a very, very slow speed, um, based on a few questions and where we start you. And then they're just going to keep, um, increasing velocity over the 800 meters, taking heart rate, um, velocity and lactate information in between each one. You're resting for about 10 seconds and you're going to continue on. And then you're going to go on until essentially you can't go any faster over the 800 meters. Um, so that's a standard running protocol for people who are running um, 10 miles or faster. And when, when you do that test, like I said, first and foremost, it's a diagnostic. We're looking at, okay, of these eight parts, do you have one part available? Do you have two parts available? Do you have three parts available? Um, for a, for an elite athlete, we want six parts for a recreational athlete. We want five parts. Um, so if and, you have and, and goal event is not a factor here. So whether we're talking middle distance running or marathon running, we still want. Matter. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and like I said, depending on the event, you're going to skew those, um, parts left or right, you know, aerobically or anaerobically. Yeah. How um, strong those systems are, but they should still be there. Yeah. So they, so you go through the test, you get the diagnostic. Okay. I have three parts available. So based on that information, and like I said, what I've built is a predictive response model that will achieve the intended lactate response based on the training stimulus that's given. So that's essentially what I developed. So based on the, if you have three parts available, um, you're going to get the training prescription that first and foremost, the goal is to get you to five parts. So we're going to give you a training load and intensity that's appropriate for you based on the, uh, analysis of your your test results so you're going to get heart rate zones you're going to get training paces and certain volume work to rest ratio that's going to the goal is to create more parts um and what the system that that that's very common because in about 90 percent of first time initial uh physiological profile analysis most people have what i ref if you're less than five i call it a bioenergetic deficit um, I never use the word overtraining because uh, I don't feel that's the appropriate way to describe um, an inability uh, or performance stagnation or declines. I call it bioenergetic deficit because there's many reasons why performance may de be declined or you may have low energy availability. Um, and most often it's not necessarily overtraining rather than inappropriate training load. Um, in theory, most of the times people say you're overtraining when if the if it was appropriate for you at that time, it really wouldn't be overtraining. It's just inappropriate. Um, so if you have some level of bioenergetic deficit, which most people do upon initial evaluation, you're going to go into what I refer to as NAGS training or neuromuscular adaptation and glycogen sparing training, um, which is limited in volume and intensity and uh and work to and and essentially the goal is to create more energy so essentially put you in a glycogen sparing phase for a certain amount of time 
um, typical NAGS training in a in a elite athlete, you can gain a system in seven to ten days in NAGS training. Um, so essentially, by what's what people often think of as tapering or comp, super compensation mode, um, I think that's the worst approach ever to train in a super compensation mode because you're essentially not actually training the energy systems in which you need to race. So if you're always in a bioenergetic deficit and then you rely on a quote unquote taper to perform, you're getting free speed, but you're not actually able to train that power or energy to perform at a higher level. Um, uh, can, so can, can, can you repeat that train of thought? Because uh, I wasn't quite following there with the, with the tapering. Why, why it, uh, you're getting free speed, but you're not that, uh, in a, yeah, able so to use it? With my actual, with tracking this um, for the last 20 years, what I found is what people typically think of as a taper, you, you will gain a system, which automatically increases your performance capability about 6% to 8%. It's free speed. But in actuality, if they're training in, in, with missing parts, essentially, kind of following this methodology in which I'm using, if they're training in a depleted mode, in a bioenergetic deficit, they're missing parts, you're not actually able to train the parts you don't have available. If the energy's not there, you can't train it. So essentially, you're relying on a taper or free speed um, to gain energy and then perform at a level in which you really haven't trained, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's sort of a like a duct tape fixing of a problem exactly. that was there for, for a long time and, and should have been corrected a long time ago. And then you could have actually trained it and fix it properly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the, the super compensation, which is a, which is a common model amongst, you know, several sports, um, rowing and swimming, especially, uh, where they, you know, they rely on the taper too much and the, you know, the free speed, yeah, it's nice to have, but at the same time, you're going to perform a lot better if you're actually, you know, have that energy available, you're training it, and then you're gaining even more, more free speed if you are actually training the systems in which, in which you intend to race at instead of um, training an inferior system. So kind of getting back to energy, um, you know, the way human, per, human energy works, unlike I'll kind of refer back to cars and engines because I, I like I like using that analogy. You know, if you've got a race car and that's a high performance vehicle, you know, it's meant to operate. Uh, you can kind of compare it to the anaerobic system, high powered, high velocity, and it runs off of, you know, high octane fuel. A certain type of fuel makes that that engine run the way it does. Right. Yeah. And then you've got some other type of, you know, Mitsubishi Prius or something that runs on a very low efficiency. It's it meant it, that that car is designed to go longer. You know, similar to like an Ironman athlete, it goes longer. It uses more of an efficient fuel, and um, you know, it's not going to go as fast, but it can go longer. So you've got kind of the two ends of the spectrum. But in humans, you know, it, it's different because you have those two ends of the spectrum. You have everything kind of in the middle, but if that high octane car runs out of fuel, it's going to stop. Correct? Because it, yes. it can't go anymore. Well, in humans, we're very we are the we are the most magnificently designed machines there are because we won't stop, right? We're not going to stop. Our bodies adapt and we adapt to the fuel we have available. 
And if even though I'm intending to be a high, high intensity, high octane um, athlete, I can only adapt to the fuel I have available. And so if I burned out my high intensity, high octane fuel, I'm going to adapt to the next inferior source. So what happens there is I adapt to the next source that's available, but in turn, my, my ability to generate velocity and power is also decreased. So we, we get slower. And this is a common thing I see. Athletes work hard, train hard. They, they burn out their high-end energy and they adapt to slower energy. Their performances are getting worse and worse and worse, yet they think they're working harder and harder and harder. But in reality, they're just, they're, they have no good fuel left and they're just adapting to the slower fuel until they eventually get injured is essentially what happens because, and this is kind of a whole different part of my research and application is return to play. And, you know, you can see what your risk of injury is based on the number of systems you have available. Because when you're constantly asking your body to do something outside of its physiological range, your risk of injury is greater because you're asking it to do something it's not actually prepared to do. So you're... You you mean like doing hard training on slow fuel? Exactly. 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 Exactly right. So, you know, there's so much more <laughs> to lactate <laughs> than people know and realize that it's, it's just amazing. Um, you know, and, and the ability and understanding of it, you know, on, on, in the general population on the surface is, is so small. And there's so much more to it that it, it's, it's just really fascinating um, how much it relates to so many different things in, in human performance, um, in human metabolism, in fuel utilization, uh, in, and so on that, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, like I said, I spent the last 20 years, <laughs> um, just really testing and working, working with, working with it across, you know, many different types of athletes, many different types of sports. And like I said, um, my intention was really to understand training responses, but so much more came out of it from return to play, um, you know, coming off of injuries, coming off of illnesses, you know, athletes are often left, you know, they say the doc, they go to the doctor, they're like, Oh, well just go on how you feel. Well, you just had mono. Um, you're not going to let a, a high school, you know, I work with college and high school athletes quite a bit. And, you know, these athletes are always getting mono. They're always getting these things. And, there's really nobody or no guidelines to tell them what's safe and appropriate return to play um, training load. Well, this test will tell them exactly that, you know, so I, you know, if you're able to see, okay, how much time do you actually need? What's actually appropriate for you at this time in order to return to play safely or return to, you know, training safely. Um, And that's been one of the, like, really rewarding parts of this, you know, which I didn't, wasn't really intended, but it just, it, it came out, um, of all this work. And that's been really, uh, a rewarding part of my work is really helping in that aspect because there really, really isn't anything else available to really give a, a training prescription, uh, for athletes returning, you know, from injury or illness and things like that. So, yeah, yeah, that is an amazing use case, definitely. And uh, it is eye-opening, really eye-opening. I'm, I'm so fascinated by this. I want to return a little bit to that example with uh, we're taking this test and let's say we have this example athlete. Uh, let's call them a, an Ironman age group mm-hmm. athlete. And, and they have 
one system missing, as you say, is typically the case. Uh, what, what would the, then the prescription look like? You mentioned already the, that kind of the, the kind of training to get the, the system back uh, to get it to even get the system. But after that, if you get the system back, how does your training then adapt? Is it just about trying to balance out how strong your different systems are depending on what your goals are and what would be a typical case for an Ironman age grouper, like in this example, for uh, for that scenario? Yeah, so, um, well, there's a couple of factors that come into play when, when, when you take the test and then there's a training prescription that's, you know, a training plan that's prescribed. And that's going to be based off, one, the test results. You know, how many parts, how many systems do we have available? You know, how much, how much, uh, NAGS training, how much glycogen sparing training do we need to perform? Uh, like I said, in, a, in novice athletes, it's going to take about 10 to 14 days to gain a system. So if they're only missing one system. We're going to drop their volume and, and, and intensity for about 10 to 14 days. Um, also, you know, if they're only missing one system, I don't really ever, I don't say, okay, I need a food log. I need to know your, you know, your calories. I need to know your carbohydrate intake, because I found a direct correlation between, um, you know, low carbohydrate <laughs> um, diets and bioenergetic availability. It's really a problem. Um, and there's what, a direct what, a, what a surprise. <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise. Yeah. So, um, you know, when athletes aren't consuming enough carbohydrate, it has a direct, direct impact on their ability to perform. Um, so, you know, that's if, if an athlete shows up with three or less, I automatically, you know, do the, do the food log valuation to make sure that they're, you know, essentially this is an energy. We're looking at energy, you know, we're, the, the training is energy out and the fuel and rest is energy in. And on the, the test is going to give you, are we in balance? Is our bioenergetics in balance? And if there's less than five in a, in a age group type athlete, then we're in balanced somewhere. Either you're outputting too much or you're not putting in enough. And um, if if you're in a, you know, I have different, I, I place different stages of bioenergetic um, deficit from mild. Uh, when you, if you have four to five systems available, um, we're going to give you anywhere from 10, from anywhere from two to four weeks of NAGS training. Uh, if you have mild bioenergetic deficit, two to three weeks, two to three systems available, we're going to, you know, cut back your training uh, for a minimum of four weeks. We're going to do, a, you know, a food log, make sure your mac first macronutrients are, are in line to where it needs to be. Um, and and then you, then and, you have and what, what, what would be a rough uh, guideline for what your macronutrients should be if you are in that kind of bioenergetic bioenergetic deficit? Um, I found that anybody who's consuming uh, less than about 55 to 60% carbohydrates is at risk for bioenergetic deficit if they're an athlete. Um, so that's, that is generally, you know, where I try to target people um, in order to ensure that the energy in is adequate to uh, provide the energy they need for energy for training. Um, so we're the general recommendation that I'm going to make is getting them to about 55 to 65% carbohydrates, um, as our, our first step. Um, because without that, they, 
they're really going to continuously be in a bioenergetic deficit and they're going to continuously be underperforming. Um, so that's first and foremost. Um, so depending on the getting back to what would the prescription look like um, for an athlete who's, who's, you know, you're going to go into NAGS training, which is, which we say you're going to limit your um, total work to about 75 minutes a day. Um, you're going to go into like what I refer to as, as uh, mid to low aerobic zone, heart rate zone. And you're not going to do any interval training that's above your, your available energy systems. So for example, if the intense, so when I do the, the test results, uh, it's going to give you training paces for each of your systems and that correlate to that net, net energy output. And we're not going to give you a velocity that's greater than what you have available. We're not going to give you training outside of your current um, bioenergetic availability. So the, the speed in which you're, you may do some intervals um, is going to be what's appropriate to your test results. And so you're to not make, gonna... to, to, just to make this clear for the listeners, let's say that your, your highest lactate value is, again, I have no idea what the typical uh, test results when you have four systems or three systems would look like, but let's say that your, uh, your highest lactate value is X, then you, you know that the pace for that net lactate value is, is a certain pace for that athlete yeah. based on the, on the results, and that's the pace, even though the athlete is, of course, capable of running faster, but they're not allowed yes. to run faster in, in training because they don't really have exactly. the, uh, the energetic availability to, to do so from a physiological perspective. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah, and each of those sessions, um, one of the things that I did wrong for many years but then mastered is, is what I call energy priming. So that's exactly what we're doing is priming energy systems to become available or ready for subsequent stages of training. Um, and energy priming serves kind of two purposes. You know, so the, the NAGS training is the most common scenario where you're trying to generate systems. So we're going to do energy priming at the appropriate velocity uh, and work to rest ratio, which is essentially going to be less than less than 20 minutes of total work and your intervals are going to be um, anywhere from like 20 to 60 seconds with the one-to-one rest, rest uh, ratio of work to rest um, at the appropriate velocity that's inside your, your bioenergetic availability. That's appropriate. Um, so these, these so would probably that, feel like very easy interval workouts compared to what the athlete would be used to doing. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. So the the purpose of this is one to gain energy, um, and then like I said, you know my my research has shown that it's going to take uh, you know in a in a uh, non elite athlete it's going to take anywhere from like ten to fourteen days to gain a system. So we would say, oh, over the next month you're going to progress from you know this system. Then we're going to assume after two weeks you have this system available, so we're going to bump you up to this velocity, et cetera, et cetera. And by the end of the four weeks, you should. Um, be at five systems as long as you have adequate carbohydrate fuel available um, while you're training. So um, that part's on them. The training prescriptions on the coach, the fueling's on the athlete. Um, so, so that's what it would look like, you know, as far as priming to, you know, add a system and gaining a system. And then from there, you essentially look at okay when is my race? Is my race in six months? Is my race in three months? 
and how many energy systems, you know, one, what, what is my uh, goal system? What is my goal energy uh, system for my event? So for an Ironman, we're going to be at the low end of that uh, energy spectrum. We're going to be in the, you know, long endurance aerobic energy, what I refer to as prolonged aerobic capacity system. Um, and that's going to be somewhere in the two to four millimole range is where a lot of the work is going to occur. Um, so you've got, that's your, that's your, uh, main system for, for that peak peak event. If you're referring to like an Ironman event. So then you look at, okay, between now and, and peak, um, how much time do I have? How many systems can I develop between now and then? So the answer is going to depend on, you know, do I have six months? Do I have three months? Do I have one month? Um, and how much am I able to, de to develop in that time? So in general, my prescription, I, I prescribe to a single stimulus block approach. Um, one, I found that in, in researching and tracking, it creates the most predictable and accelerated response rate um, in, in terms of uh, you can predict the physiological response, you can predict the lactate response, but you can also, uh, it also accelerates response rate. And then, uh, so generally I'm going to put them in there for about four to six weeks in each, each system, each phase. Um, and I found that after that amount of time, the biological uh the biochemical stimulus, the training of that system essentially drops off. So we're not really going to stay with one stimulus for too long before we switch to a different system or stimulus. Um, and, you know, again, kind of going back to pulling a lot of my, my approach uh, with different, different laws of thermodynamics also apply to bio, bioenergetics um, you know, this approach is also what I found is that random, randomized training yields randomized responses and unpredictable performance results. Um, similar to the second law of thermodynamics, which affirms that, you know, the higher randomness of a system, the higher its entropy. So similar in human bioenergetics. Um, so I found that those two things, um, really correlate to one another. So, um, generally in a training block, you're going to have your recovery days, your aerobic maintenance days, and then you're going to have a main, a main system workout. That's the focus of that, of that training block. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, and how would you order that? Like you have three months to your goal event, event. Would you start with a block focusing on the system that is the weakest perhaps in relation to where it should be? Uh, like you're, you're lacking the most in that system compared to where it should be, or or is it more so working from the least specific to the more specific, which is a common way of approaching it's, training, it's, or how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on the result of that test and how much time you have. So you're going to, it's not going to be least to most specific. It's, it might be, uh, it might be, you know, you're absolutely going to get most specific as the last one, um, as long as that system's available. Um, you know, so you're definitely for an Ironman going to end up with the prolonged aerobic capacity. That's generally an available system unless you're completely, um, you know, under fueled and, you know, bioenergetic deficit. Um, but generally you're going to have that one available. Um, and then, 
you know, leading into that, like I said, most often people have to start with nags. That's pretty common. You're going to have anywhere from two to four weeks of that to start out. In the middle, you know, you probably, um, I would I would put in there one of the VO2 systems uh, somewhere in the range of your 6 to 12 millimole range, depending on the result and the person, uh, and depending on how many systems we can train in between testing and and the uh, peak peak event. Um, so, so I would never I would never do adjacent systems if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the biochemical stimulus is too similar that you're probably not going to get, well, not, I'm not going to say probably, I know from my testing and evaluation and observation that you don't get a stronger response, as strong of a response if you do adjacent systems. Um, so it's generally going to have one, one or two systems in between, uh, stimulus from phase to phase, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes makes a lot of sense actually, but but it is quite something that we like in in all the the, the things that we read and hear about traditional linear periodization and reverse linear periodization. You always work adjacent systems, so so yeah. it's, it's all like a light bulb moment when you when you say yeah. that it it makes total sense. But it's uh, it's not something that is commonly done. It's not. It's not, and that's why most people, like I said, when I when I test are in a a level of bioenergetic deficit is because when you're working adjacent systems um you know back to back your tendency one your response rate is going to be diminished and two your tendency for um for crossing because you, you when you train you have to remember this when you train you're uh you're going to your you know the goal is to improve so what was one system might not be a different system uh, it, unless you retest and get updated information, right? So one where the, the, the adjacent system approach, you're a lot of times just really targeting the same thing for an entirely too long period of time. You're not going to get a response rate and you're going to um, set yourself up for um, performance stagnation, declines and, uh, decreasing your bioenergetic availability because if you're focusing on one substrate for too long of a period of time, uh, reliance on one substrate, your physiological range shrinks. Um, you're pulling too much energy into one spot. So energy is going to shift and you're going to get diminished, uh, you know, metabolic adaptability. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, makes sense. Can can you talk about some other training mistakes that people do that can lead to getting into a state of bioenergetic deficit? Um, I would say the most common one is not planning rest. People are so afraid to plan days off and they just take them when they feel like it or when they're hurt. Um, you know, one of I, I'm I've been an athlete my entire life. Um, you know, and one of the things that and I work with high level athletes all the time. And, and one of the things athletes, especially endurance athletes are afraid to do is take off. Um, they get really scared. And I, a great example, um, I work with, uh, Villanova university. They're close. They're local to me. So I see their athletes quite a bit, a couple days a week. And this one girl, um, she had a little bit of a, a tweak in her back 
and she had a big 5k coming up and um you know i had to really put her at ease and say listen um talking about energy and and gaining systems remember i talked about um you know how how long it takes to gain systems and performance increases six to eight percent by gaining energy and what i had to explain to her i said you know i've looked at energy in real time and you can take up to 14 days off you're gaining fitness i said you could do nothing for the next 14 days and you're gonna you're gonna run faster you're gaining fitness i don't no matter what it says so, so don't worry taking this week off or light you're not going to um have a bad race all you need to do is go out there and do um, a couple intervals, you know, hundreds or two hundreds at, you know, at your base pace, you take off, you're gaining six, you're gaining energy. And, um, you know, she's afraid, you know, very, very common. And, you know, she goes out there, runs like a 20 second PR over 5k and then she's really happy. But, um, what I found is most people don't take off unless they're injured or they don't plan it ahead of time. And then they have to take off similar to that example I gave where, the engine uh, runs out of energy and it keep, you know, the humans, we adapt to inferior fuel until finally we have to stop because we're hurt because we're continuously working outside of our actual limits. So by planning regular recovery, I always put a, what I call a transition week in between phases, a zero stimulus week, a down week in between every phase. Um, you know, there's regular days off depending on the person and their situation, but there's regular days off, um, again, to avoid bioenergetic deficit and, um, eventually, you know, overreaching, um, and injuries. Um, so I think that's more, especially in endurance sports sprinters, they don't have, they don't have a hard time taking off, but endurance sports, they get nervous taking off. Definitely. And, and do you think that, uh, because in the, it's a, a counter argument would be that, well, you can do just a, a 30 minute, very easy run. Is that a rest day for you? Or is it just that, uh, it's more than the minimal effective dose and actually having the complete day off would be preferable. I, I say the complete day off is preferable. Um, hands down, hands down. All right. Uh, any other mistakes that, that come to mind in terms of training? Um, I mean, I, I mean, we, we mentioned a couple of them in terms of the linear, linear block approach, mm. um, the assumed energy approach, um, which is very common because most people don't have access to actual, you know, energy, um, you know, in terms of uh, human energy spectrum, you know, let's just take the, the general concept and understanding of quote-unquote, lactate threshold, right? So if you were to kind of ask most people, they would say, which, 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 which minimal value correlates to one's lactate threshold? I'm asking you, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, the, the common wisdom is that four millimoles is uh, on average fairly close to the lactate threshold as it's traditionally measured. Exactly, right? And that's, and that's, that's very standard. That's a very standard response. And the reason why I don't use quote unquote lactate threshold or a four millimole mark to set training is because in, in human physiological profiling, as I mentioned earlier, um, physiology is dynamic. Okay. So at any point in time, 
a net lactate value of four can be anywhere from 16 to 100% of one person's maximum lactate value. And people don't realize this. Like, do you understand what I just said? So yes, I understand. I'm trying to I'm doing some math in my head here. That's yeah. why I got quiet. <laughs> yeah. So four millimoles. So for example, if you and I both did a test and we were just looking for our lactate threshold four millimole value, that's great. So say we both have the same velocity. Say we both had a six-minute mile as our four millimole value. I know you're, you work in kilometers. I can't do that math, so I'm just going to say miles. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> fairly comfortable with, with miles as well. I have some American American clients, so yeah. I'm getting you to that. So, but if you looked, and this is kind of where my whole ha-ha moment went, because I was, remember, I started out mainly with middle distance athletes. And I'm like, well, four millimoles isn't even close to where they're performing. I need to know what's going on where they're performing. When I found, when I realized quickly that um, four millimoles can be somebody's max value, that's bad. That's really bad. So if you set your training based off of, so if you and I both test, four might be my max right now, but it might be um, 25% of your max at the current time. Your max yeah. value could be 20. So I think, it's more, I, think it's, I think it's more likely that it's the other way around with <laughs> my training and your background. <laughs> probably. But... But think about that for a moment. So even though we both have the same quote-unquote lactate threshold, if we were prescribed the same training based on that value, you know, let's just say it was reversed. My max is 20, your max is 4. You're going to be clearly overtraining, and I'm going to be clearly undertraining. Yeah. Right? Yeah, for sure. So that's one of the reasons why I don't even use that term or even talk about it. Because, one, it, it's, it gives a – it's not really a – data point in which you in the real world is very useful. Um, <laughs> so that's one reason. And secondly, um, there's actually lactate thresholds, which you probably realize this at each net lactate level, and they're all trainable, um, you know, but basing it on one data point, which is the four millimole most common determination of lactate threshold is going to be do a disservice to most athletes. And and I guess that like the way that most people do their lactate tests, it's not that four millimoles is the magic number, but they try to find the inflection points. But uh, I know we talked about this, but for the listeners' uh, sake, what is the argument why the inflection points aren't the best way to, to find a quote-unquote threshold either? Well, and again, because there's actually... Th- you know, when you break, just go back to my earlier statement is that lactate's a unit of energy and each unit of energy has different, is, is unique. And each unit of energy has different components in, and, and, um, basically characteristics. Okay. So some of those units of energy are meant to operate, uh, in long, slow, and some of them are meant to operate fast and short. And then we have everything in between. And the assumption of most is that everyone's capacity to do work is the same at each unit of energy when that is in fact not true. Um, So my approach is to work within known variables. What we can measure is somebody's power or velocity at each unit of energy, and we can train capacity, but we don't really know their capacity to do work. One, we don't even have the technology available to measure that. Um, so that's something I kind of give 
parameters to the coaches and they monitor. We train, you know, the, the confines or the governors in which I give to my coaches that I, that I work with or my athletes is the velocity or power because that's a known variable that we can measure and we train capacity. So say if your, your, uh, your velocity at a certain energy, uh, net lactate value or en- energy unit is, is such, we train the amount of work you can do at that, uh, that power or velocity and try to increase capacity um, instead of guesstimating capacity or assuming capacity to do work. So it's just more of a, um, a, a broader use for lactate. And, and, and there you're, you're referring to the fact that uh, the conventional wisdom is that uh, at lactate threshold, you have a certain capacity, which is more or less an hour or so of work at, yes. at that intensity, but you're working yes. the other way around. You're, you're exactly. working. Yeah. Because I know many uh, athletes who can't do an hour work at any intensity. So, you know, it's a very poor assumption. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and so that's that's um, kind of the, the way that I go at it is just known variable. You know, let's work within the within the the metrics that we can measure and, and go off of that. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about nutrition a little bit as well and how, how that plays, uh, plays into this and uh, yeah. mistakes with nutrition and, uh, and how nutrition can lead to getting into a bioenergetic deficit, but also how you can use it to get out of it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, so as I mentioned or maybe alluded to, um, <laughs> is that you know, I've found a direct correlation between low-carbohydrate diets and um, bioenergetic deficit. Um, and what, what people need to understand is, you know, lactate is a very, very miraculous molecule. And it's not, it's not a waste product and all these things that people think it is. Um, lactate's a major energy source. Um, but it's also, um, needed to basically for, for glycolysis. Okay, so we need lactate uh, for glycolysis. And lactate is also a sing- signaling molecule um, for hormone production. So essentially, when you're in bioenergetic deficit, when you eat low-carb diets, your ability to produce lactate is diminished, which will lead to a person's inability to maintain homeostasis. Okay, yep. so that's in enough, that's what I feel is the biggest problem with the high fat, low carb diet. Um, you know, this whole notion of becoming quote unquote fat adapted is ridiculous because there's not a, a, um, you know, infinite, infinite, uh, ability to adapt to a substrate. Okay. So if you're limiting your substrate to fats, you are limiting your ability to, you know, for glycolysis, you're limiting your ability to produce lactate. And you're limiting your ability to produce hormones, which are key important things to performance. Um, so, you know, the premise of, you know, metabolic efficiency and, and you know, fat adapted, um, you know, it's key for um, you're not teaching your body to burn more fat. You're, 
you're essentially slowing down your metabolism and you're having the opposite effect of what you think you're doing because without what remember I said the metabolic adaptability without it, um, these substrates across the metabolic spectrum, you are unable to, like I said, all those parts lead to performance, but they also, the fewer parts you have, the less metabolically efficient you are. So your ability to burn fuel, your ability to be, to, um, you know, burn fat is going to be drastically reduced. If you only have fat available, your body's going to store fat and your body's going to slow down because it doesn't have the fuel and the metabolic adaptability it needs from other substrates. Um, so the reality is that this whole notion and concept of, you know, fat adapted, low, you know, low carb is having the opposite effect. And I have hundreds and hundreds of case studies of this. Um, you know, like I said, when I, when I test somebody and they've got one system available, two systems available, I, I automatically do a macronutrient, um, and micronutrient evaluation. And, um, it's pretty much 100% of the time, the low carb, high fat diet. And, you know, not only is this person experiencing, you know, a progressive decline of performance, you know, and these are Ironman athletes, endurance athletes, decline in performance, but they're also experiencing now an inability to maintain homeostasis and general health, you know, so that, you know, the whole, Oh, you, you know, you have hormone production issues, you have low T, you know, cortisol, your testosterone, everything is thrown off. Um, and because of, you know, like I said, this lactate is a very key part of many things in the body and your, your physiological reign and your ability to produce lactate across the spectrum is very important. And in order to do that, you need adequate carbohydrates. And that's the short of the story. <laughs> so, yeah. um, you know, it's in, you know, and until somebody shows me otherwise, you know, I have hundreds of case studies to show, you know, why high fat, low carb diets work in nobody. Yeah. And, and I, one thing that I remember reading that, uh, that stood out to me was uh, Louise Burke, who's done a lot of studies on low carb, high fat diets and performance in endurance athletes. She said that it's kind of funny that we had to make all these studies when you could just open a biochemistry textbook and, and realize that mm -hmm. that's what, what was going to happen just because of, as, as you know, with your background, uh, that uh, right. there, there are certain dynamics and, and it's, it's a biochemistry equation right. that's going on in our body, right. in, in the engine all the time. Yeah. Yeah, the basic science shows, you know, you, when the, the human body has feedback systems for survival purposes, okay? If our good fuel is short, which is our carbohydrates, you know, we, we go to survival mode and metabolic adaptations. You know, unlike the car who's going to shut down, we have to adapt for survival purposes. If we adapt to fats because inadequate carbohydrates are, are not available, that's called ketosis. It's pretty commonly known as ketosis, okay? And this, this is going to inhibit glycolysis. And this is, the, this is the problem. This is the big problem. When you inhibit glycolysis, like I said, you're not able to produce adequate amounts of lactate that will help with maintaining homeostasis and hormone production. But you're also limiting your ability to produce ATP. You know, ATP is our, you know, energy currency, mm. you know. So there's a lot of issues that are, that are you know, being caused by this. And, you know, people think that, you know, you know, we're athletes, everybody thinks that they can 
trick the system and, you know, the u- rules of human metabolism don't apply to me. Um, they do. They, they most certainly do. And, you know, the bioener- bioenergetic costs of relying on fats, contrary to carbohydrates, is that the, the velocity or power of work rates absolutely will be diminished. So, you know, you have your choice. You know, you want to, you know, try to infinitely increase your fat adaptation at the cost of performance, then go ahead. But it's not going to, it's not going to help you, nor is it going to help you become a leaner athlete? So, you know, there's no, there's no science. There's no, there's no actual, um, you know, in my years of actually studying and collecting data on athletes, I haven't seen one case where this approach has worked. And quite frankly, it's just bad for your health. And to tackle something that I know will come up as uh, as a follow up question from from listeners, uh, the a trendy thing to do is to as uh, quote unquote uh, train low, race high. But I guess that's the same example as we talked about with the tapering. That if you're like basically shutting down some of your systems, then it doesn't matter what you put into the system on race day because you you do not have, I guess, the cylinders in that case to to use that fuel. In, in an effective way you can you can use it on the on the low end of the spectrum but you can't use it in in those more in those high-end systems absolutely, absolutely. And, and even for ironman athletes what you're saying is that we need those some of those higher end systems at least to be able to effectively uh convert uh convert oxygen into into energy and, and produce forward movement absolutely absolutely okay um this has been extremely fascinating i just have uh I guess the rapid fire questions left, uh, but before we go into them, is there anything that we've left out that you want to mention on this topic, Shannon? Um, I think we cover them all adequately. You know, I could probably give a dissertation on each one of these topics, but. <laughs> and, I, and I would love to hear it, but uh, for, for the sake of, of this episode, let's move into the rapid fire questions. And the first one sure. is what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to uh, triathlon or endurance sports? Um, I would have to say personally, you know, the work of, um, Alois Mader kind of is a lot of stuff I go back to and George Brooks. Um, I definitely, you know, even though it's a little more biochemistry and science based, um, I just, I love reading like Brooks has a lot of really great stuff that, that comes out and, um, you know, I, you know, I, I read a lot of, you know, books and uh, resources that come out um, just from, a, you know, coaching, coaching concepts and things that people are doing. Um, but I guess for me, it's a little bit hard to kind of get out of the lactate data space. And there's not that many people that I can have conversations with about that. So I always kind of draw back to Brooks and Mater <laughs> quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I would say that you know, more of the, the biochemistry work that's coming out is, is yep. what I re- go back to. Yeah. Fair enough. And uh, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I would have to say, um, one, my ability to, uh, enjoy rest and recovery. Um, and two, I would say my focus, I, I really, I try to incorporate dynamic stretching into um, before almost every workout. 
Um, I think not a lot of endurance athletes understand the value of muscle elasticity and performance and injury prevention and something so simple can really, um, really in, in, improve and increase your, uh, your, your life of your, of your sport for sure. Um, you know, it, it, I, I feel like that's something that's neglected quite a bit. And, you know, I'd rather do that than run an extra 10 minutes or bike an extra 10 minutes. And a lot of endurance athletes, I feel like, are the opposite. Yeah, by the time that this podcast goes live, last week's episode was one where I talked about a lot of uh, things that, I guess, low-hanging fruit, how athletes can improve their training by doing things that they are not currently doing. And, and doing dynamic stretching and mobilization before workouts is one thing that I mentioned. I totally agree with you. So, so thank you for validating that. And uh, finally, what do you wish you had known or done differently at some point in your athletic or professional career? Um, one, I think I, I, I wish I would have learned to swim as a kid. (laughs) Um, and I wish I would have started doing triathlon earlier. I did one in college. Um, my fifth year, I, well, I, I, I got injured quite a bit in college. So I, I, took a swimming class. So I learned to swim in college. And then I started working out with the triathlon club at our school. I went to university of Florida. So we had a budding triathlon club, which was mostly a bunch of crazy guys. But, um, so I, I got to know them pretty well. And then my fifth year I was done with track eligibility and they had just started putting on, um, the national collegiate triathlon championships here in the U S and, they invited me to go and I, I borrowed a wetsuit that was probably three sizes too big. Uh, I borrowed a bike. I'm five foot one. I borrowed a bike of a guy that's six foot and I wore my running shoes on it. Uh, I was definitely hanging off the, the, the boat coming out of the water and I didn't know how to shift gears going up the hill. So I ran my bike up every hill. Um, and then I still managed to run my way up to like 10th place. So it was pretty fun. I had a great time, but then I didn't do another one until, um, until maybe 15 years later or something like that. So I wish I had started do, maybe 10 years later, something like that, but I wish I had stuck with it earlier. Um, but yeah, I think that those are the two things that I wish I would have done, but I love triathlon and I love biking and swimming and running. So, yeah. And uh, you had a professional running career, so, so it's not too bad. Yeah. It's not too bad. Yeah. I, I, well, so yeah, I did have a professional running career and essentially when I had my son, I was afraid to go back to running because I was thought I was going to be slow. So I was like, I'll do triathlon. There's no pressure. I don't have to, you know, no, nobody thinks, you know, so that's kind of how that started. Cause I just didn't want to, I didn't want to be slow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that makes sense uh all right Shannon, this has been absolutely amazing it's been one of the most fascinating interviews i've, I've done to date so uh thank you so much for for coming on and where where can uh, people follow you and find out more about you and uh, tell us about the book that you have coming up at some point as well yep well um so you can follow me on instagram um go athletics is my company so you can check out my website it's systembasedtraining.com and my my Instagram is GoAthleticsCEO, Shannon Grady uh, is my name. 
And, um, yep, the book that I have coming out is going to be on a few of the topics um, that we talked about today, but it's essentially, um, you know, bioenergetics and human performance and, you know, why um, using biomarkers in training is very valuable. Um, so it kind of covers quite a in more in depth some of the things we talked about today um, and the theories and rationale and, and research behind uh, my current methodology and application of lactate data, um, which hopefully some people will find interesting. Oh, definitely. At least uh, the person on the other side of the microphone here will, will do. <laughs> well, I'm glad because, you know, it's really hard to find people to talk about with lactate dynamics and when i find somebody i can talk to i'm like okay do you want to talk again <laughs> yes so so we'll we'll definitely do that when when the book comes out if not if not before i'm totally up for for another round great okay uh, i'll let you go now uh, but uh, again it was great to have you on and we'll have all the links to everything you mentioned in the show notes as well uh, so so thank you so okay. much for your time thank you As you can hear, I am extremely fascinated by this topic and uh, by this talk with Shannon. So I really want to to give her a huge shout out. She is extremely knowledgeable and uh, and I was really blown away by this interview and, and this talk. So really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, Shannon, for coming on the podcast. And uh, definitely we should try to have, uh, have a follow-up at a later point to discuss more. Uh, so for the listeners, if you have any feedback about this episode, any questions, please let me know and I'll put them in the backlog and, and we'll try to tackle some, some of those topics when we, when we have Shannon on at another point, perhaps when her new book is out. So to time that book release with, with another podcast episode. Uh, also let me know if you think it was an appropriate mix of practical and technical information. Uh, so that we can find the right balance for next time, but also for other episodes like this in general. Finally, thank you to everybody who has been rating and reviewing the podcast. In June, we got 11 new written reviews in, which is uh, pretty, pretty good. So huge thank you to all of you who left a rating and a review. And if you haven't done so already, uh, with an average number of reviews of 10 or less per month, uh, you should be aware that your review makes a massive difference and it matters. So please take a minute to leave one if you haven't already. That really helps a long way to keep the show growing, which is what allows me to spend a lot of time on it and uh, keep pushing out these episodes. So I would really appreciate that. And of course, the absolute best way to spread the word about the podcast and help out is to actually just talk with your friends, people that you race with, any endurance athlete that you see perhaps in your local uh, local sports shop or whatever it may be. That really goes a long way. And word of mouth is uh, even better than radio and reviews, actually. So, so that's also a massive help if you can keep spreading the word that way. So thank you for that in advance. Finally, big thank you, of course, to our great sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. And you can get 20% off your entire order, whether it's wetsuits, trisuits, high-performance eyewear, uh, any swim or triathlon apparel that you might need uh, with the promo code TTS, all caps. And thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get an individualized hydration strategy for your next race. And try your first box or tube for free with the promo code THATTRIATHLONSHOW, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.